This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. For Software Engineering Radio, this is Robert Blumen. Today, I'm joined by Andrei Gakov. Andrei is a mathematician and software engineer holding a PhD in mathematical modeling and numerical methods from the Podgorny Institute for Mechanical Engineering in Ukraine. He has taught computer science at the Karazin Kharkiv National University in Ukraine. He is currently a senior software engineer at Ferret Go GmbH, a community moderation automation and analytics company in Germany. His interests include machine learning, stream mining, and data analytics. Dr. Gakov is the author of the book Probabilistic Data Structures and Algorithms for Big Data Applications, which will have been published by the time you hear this episode. And that will be the subject of our conversation today. Andre, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Hello, thank you for having me today. Is there anything else that I didn't mention in the intro that you would like listeners to know? No, everything is fine. This is, uh, this is exactly about me. Great. I think our listeners are familiar with many different data structures, but maybe not probabilistic. We will talk about a number of these different probabilistic data structures, but could you say anything in general about what is a probabilistic data structure? Well, uh, probabilistic data structures, this is a special type of data structures which are quite useful uh, in uh, big data applications. And uh, uh, they distinguish uh, property of them, but they are not usually provide like exact answers. They have some probability of error or approximation. And this is the main difference between them and uh, conventional uh, data structures. Would it be fair to call them estimators? Uh, no, uh, actually, actually, you can you can um, you can distinguish estimators and probabilistic structures. So, because for instance, one of the data structures will uh, you will find in the book, it's a count mean sketch. It's it's approximators or estimators and probabilistic at the same time. So, because it does estimation for the problem it wants to solve and also it provides some error in solving this uh, problem so this is why it's it's not exactly estimators but uh, but it's it's very close it's very close for understanding right it's a very common type of job interview question and part of programmer training is come up with a data structure that solves a particular problem exactly if i'm going to accept an error what is it I get in return from these data structures uh, that makes me willing to accept a less than 100% accurate result? Yeah, uh, sometimes, sometimes you, cannot, you cannot get what you want if you have especially like a big data and amount, a big amount of data. Uh, that means, some, so in most cases you will get what you want, that would be the uh, correct answer. But sometimes maybe you will have the error which will require you to do additional actions to prove is that was it was it correct or was it not correct but this is kind of rare cases and uh, in uh, then you work with really huge amount of uh, data you can just tolerate that so that if i understand what you said the these probabilistic data structures give an approximate answer in cases where the data size is too big in practical terms to do it exactly so, something like that so it's not necessary data uh, too big it could be uh, what data comes too fast as well so it's something like something which is uh, unhandable in the uh, normal conditions so something if uh, you cannot solve in the normal conditions and this is why you actually tolerate the error because you want it to be solved at this some error okay but still i want to be solved in that case, an inaccurate result is better than no ability to solve the problem. Exactly. Okay. Your book is organized around 
five main use cases for probabilistic data structures. We'll talk about in more detail about each one or as many as we have time for. Would you please give us the main use cases? Okay, maybe, um, so the most known use case, this is a membership queries. Then you want to check if element, uh, some element is a member of set or not. Then there is a cardinality uh, problem. Then you want to just count no number of unique elements in the set. Then there is frequency and rank related problems where you want to estimate, I don't know, maybe frequency of element, find most frequent element or find the element who is, a, I don't know, 10, 100 or 10 quanta, 0.1 quantile, for instance. So uh, that's, it's called statistical entity quantities. The final one, this is um, similarity related problems. Then you want to find elements which are similar to some element from the set of elements. Let's go through these. We'll go through as many as we can. There's one other foundation concept that will come up uh, very frequently in this discussion, which is the hash function. Give us a review of a hash function and focus on those properties that are most relevant to this type of data structure. Correct. So uh, probabilistic data structures, they're actually based on the hashing. Uh, hash function, uh, it's just a function which compress some input to some output, which is usually uh, uh, fixed in size and much uh, smaller than the input domain. This is why uh, if you take a hash function, uh, it's unavoidable, you will have a collision. So collision, this is a situation, then two different inputs becomes the same output. So they have the same value in the, uh, after the, you apply the hash function. There are two uh, main, let's say, classes or uh, types of uh, hash functions. Uh, cryptographic and non-cryptographic, as you understand. So cryptographic functions, this is a, th these are functions which, which used a lot of in cryptography uh, and they have a special property to be resistant. So uh, that means it's, it should be really hard to find a collision in that, fu in that function. Yeah, so using that function. Also cryptographic uh, functions, they have to be really computationally extensive to compute. And also they should have a good diffusion. So the, every input should be really complex. Uh, so every in, bit in the inside input should be complex bit in the output. That means if you have, if you take two different, uh, so two, two strings which are different in one bit, you will get, have completely different uh, output. Uh, so the hash value for them. So uh, examples of cryptographic hash functions. So probably everybody knows this. So MD5, for instance, uh, was proposed by uh, Rivest in 91. Uh, the, it produces 128 bits output. Then, uh, for instance, secure hash algorithms, SHA-1, SHA-2, SHA they have uh, different um, functions in the family, so they can produce 256-bit outputs, 512-bits outputs, and so on. As an example of uh, maybe fancy cryptographic functions which you can use, for instance, there is a function Radio Gatun. It was proposed in 2006 and it claims to be 12 times fast, uh, faster than the SHA-256, for instance. Okay, so that's cryptographic functions. They, as I said, should be really hard to compute. Let me pa pause for a minute to summarize then. For cryptography, uh, I don't want you to be able to guess my password. And one of the ways to limit that is it takes a long time to make even one guess. So you're looking at functions which are intentionally computationally expensive. Is that right? Right, right. So uh, it's, uh, if, if something is computationally extensive to produce, then brute force attack is almost impossible, right? And this is one of the idea why uh, it should be hard to compute. Great. Let's move on then to the non-cryptographic. Right. And not cryptographic functions. These are functions which don't need to be so computationally extensive. What they need to be, they just need to guarantee low probability of collision. 
So they're still interesting not to collapse everything to one point. They should produce some, somehow um, randomly distributed values or uniformly distributed uh, values in the, in the output. There are two really popular and maybe well-known uh, not cryptographic functions uh, you need to know about. This is FNV, which is uh, after Fowler nor Vaux uh, offers of this function which is really easy easy to implement function and you can implement it uh, in a few lines a uh, couple couple of lines of code and another one is a murmur hash by austin appleby it was developed in 2011 it's really really fast functions uh, fast fast to compute uh, really efficient and they provide uh, 32 and 64 uh, bits uh, output Again, you can find hundreds different hash functions. Maybe, maybe let me mention uh, another tool which was produced by Google. Uh, um, they called uh, city hash and farm hash. They are based on this Murbur hash uh, function. Uh, but the difference, what they are really CPU optimized. That means they produce. They, they are much faster than other functions on um, on different architecture. So maybe on mobile phone it would be must, much faster than Murber hash, right? And uh, this is important because the faster you can compute hash function in data structure, the faster you actually process the query through the data structure. So one point I want to emphasize, suppose I'm hashing a Google document and make, I change one line out of a huge document and I go through that. 10 times. So I have 10 versions of the file, very similar to that. If I run them through these hash functions, the hash values would be statistically random or close to that. Is that correct? Right. Uh, so if you change just one bit of the input, you will get completely different uh, output value. But if you apply the same function with same parameters, again, you will get exactly the same, uh, the same value. Uh, this is important. That means you are reliable in computation, but the output is kind of unpredictable uh, until you apply the function. Okay. We have that foundation now. I'd like to move on. Let's start with membership, the most popular data structure for membership is called a bloom filter. You did define this very briefly, but let's go through the problem definition one more time. Okay, so uh, membership. A membership problem, this is a task to decide if some element is a member of set or not member of the set. So if you think about a classical way to solve this problem, what you will do, you will just consume some, uh, get some elements and store them in the array. Maybe you will pre-sort this array to be a little bit more efficient. But now membership means you check if some element inside that uh, array or not inside that array. So the lookup problem. And you, you will probably uh, do the lookup in a logarithmic time. So insertion will be uh, linear time and deletion also will be linear time. Uh, this is this is quite okay uh, until you have small amount of data. But now imagine you have I don't know a few billions of elements, and then insertion will take linear time of billion, right? And even lookup will be logarithmic of billion, which is not fast as you as you want. Uh, and this is why one of the solution for such problem. Uh, the space efficient and really uh, optimized data structure as Bloom filter, for instance. You were talking about the complexity in time of doing insert and lookup, the amount of space required if you have billions of members, potential members in your set is also uh, grows quite large. Yeah, it's also linear, actually, linear in time. But uh, it's linear to, it depends how you implement it. it, could be linear to the number of unique elements, but it still does not uh, help you so much. What operations does Bloom Filter support? Okay, so first Bloom Filter, uh, it was introduced in 70s, right? And uh, it's, it's just a probabilistic set which supports two operations. One operation, this is you add element, and another operation, you just test element, so you do lookup. We cannot remove anything, correct? Okay, so uh, that's a good question, actually. 
in the classical implementation of bloom filter you cannot remove anything but there are some modifications where you can uh, do this again there are modifications where you can do this mostly for sure uh, but in most cases uh, it's probabilistically correct deletion uh, so you will not get the correct deletion in any case okay so what's the need to this topic let's stick with the basic case so the probabilistic aspect is in the membership test talk about the characteristics of the membership test okay so uh, maybe let's start how bloom filter works it's a really simple data structure so in fact uh, bloom filter that's a bit array of some length and then to insert element of this uh, to, to, to this data structure you just need to define some number of bits which you want to to set in this bit array to, uh, to get these bits, you use some number of hash functions. So usually it's, I don't know, five to 10 hash functions which you can use. Uh, you, get the out, you get the output, which would be in the range of the length of the filter. And then computing every, applying every function to your element, you get some number uh, as an index of the bit area where you set the corresponding bit. Okay, now what happens then you want to look up, so then you want to test. You actually need to do exactly the same procedure. You compute your uh, hash functions for the input element, and then you just check if the corresponding bits are set to 1. So um, if all of them actually set to 1, you, you, can, you can say what element exists in the filter. If at least one of them is 0, you can... You, say element does not exist in the filter but the problem here what you don't know uh, who set that bit to one was it your function or maybe that was a collision with another element of that function who also set that element to one this is why the answer the positive answer always probabilistic meaning it's it could be false positive it could say yes then they actually in fact know in this filter. In contrast, if filter says no, that means for sure no. And, th and this is the uh, nature of the probabilistic approach in the Bloom filter. So false positive results possible, but they are quite rare and there is good way to, to let's say, estimate number of, of probability of such answers. Covered a number of things there. I want to go back through some of these, make sure we've all got it the test of membership if it says yes it could be wrong with a low probability if it says no it's for sure correct right that's correct and the the way this works so if i had a 16-bit hash function or i had a 32-bit hash function i could select 16 bits and i create an array of size 2 to the 16th and i i have multiple of these functions and i use them to set bits in this array and the reason you can get false positives is because hash functions do have collisions especially when you right. restrict the size of the hash to 16 bits or 8 bits or the smaller the smaller output the higher the collision probability that's right do you have any numeric example where you could say for a set of a certain size here's an error rate that you would get Okay, so um, just to get understanding how big uh, Bloom filters could be. So, for instance, you want to hash one billion of elements, which is quite quite reasonable amount right now. So, and imagine you want to have uh, like a probability of the false positive about two percent. For this case, you can estimate uh, how long filter should be. There is a formula, you can find it in the book or any there in the internet, in Wikipedia, for instance. So, and that formula says what actually for one billion element on the 2% probability of error, you will need uh, about uh, 8 billion bits in the filter, uh, which is about one gigabyte of memory. So it's a, a quite big, uh, quite big filter. But now if you think about uh, how many memory do you need if you want to, to store the strings in array and try to uh, run membership uh, queries against the data structure. So for instance, you want to store API addresses 
IP addresses, let's say IPv6 protocol, that's 128 bits. And then 1 billion of 128 bit, that would be 16 gigabyte of memory already. Yeah, If, if you have longer uh, values, then you have even more and more and more memory. So you will not only depend on the number of element, but also on the size of the each element, right? And the Bloom filter is just static, let's say static size, you just define the size and you can index uh, the uh, number of elements uh, um, which, which you calculated as uh, supported by this filter. In this example you provided then the savings could be at least 16 to 1, but it could be more if you were dealing with longer strings in your set. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it could be more and more. And in return for that savings, you have to accept a 2% error rate. Uh, yes. Or if you have more memory, you can reduce the, uh, the, the probability of the error. But still, you need to be aware what there would be probability in any case of error. That means you cannot just say, I will, I will make unlimited uh, size and will have zero probability. So there would be always probability, uh, just the, uh, the question of how big and how acceptable that level for you. I'd like to talk about some of the practical uses because this is quite widely used. I'm aware that some databases, popular databases like HBase and Cassandra use Bloom filters. What do they use it for? Okay, um, actually uh, most of usage of uh, Bloom filter um, have the same pattern. Yeah? So this is something to avoid doing some complex operation, they use Bloom filter in front of it. So for instance, databases, they use it to reduce disk lookups or, uh, or if, you, if you think about distributed databases as Cassandra, they can re uh, use Bloom filter to reduce network lookup and then disk lookup. So for instance, you have uh, entities and every time then you index entity into the data database, you also populate it to the Bloom filter. And now uh, imagine you get a request, get that entity from the, from the database. So if you don't have a Bloom filter, what you have to do? You have to, uh, if it's distributed database, they, you have to connect, connect the correct node. Then you go to the disk, do search, and then it's, at some point you, you found what entity does not exist or it exists. But if it exists, then it's okay. You, you succeeded and usually this is not the worst case in the search. But if it does not exist, then you will hit the worst case of the search. You just spend resources, uh, just waste resources. And instead you can have a Bloom filter in front of, in front of uh, that procedure and you just check in the Bloom filter if that entity actually could exist. So may that ex uh, entity exist. If entity does not exist and we know what Bloom filter never lies in this, at this point, you can just immediately answer to the user, not found. If Bloom filter says uh, entity exists, what we, need, what we will do, we will do the same procedure. We will go through network, go to the disk and try to find uh, the entity. Of course, there are, let's say, 1% of such cases will end up with not, not found, but this is only 1% and you already stored a lot. So you already reduced these lookups and you already optimized your uh, database. What you've described is a pattern for using Bloom filters. If you have some operation that takes, say, milliseconds, you could, in every case where it's not there, you could avoid the operation. And in, in if we're using our previous numbers, 98% of the time where it is there, you would still be able to avoid doing the lookup did I get that right? Right, 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 yeah. Okay. Another interesting case is in the Google Chrome web browser for identifying malicious URLs. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that works? Okay, so uh, first, they, I think they already implemented different solution, but that solution was for quite long time. Actually, that's the same pattern. So imagine you have a number of URLs which are malicious, right? So, and user types something in the browser. And now what kind of strategies you can, you can have? So one strategy you can 
take that URL and uh, ask the Google server or some other server and that server finds through the database and does uh, and creates the answer yes this is a good URL or this is a bad URL. Uh, but instead, you can uh, you can uh, populate many many different mal malicious URLs and store them on the client size, because you cannot store too much URLs on the client size, otherwise you will have really huge installation of uh, Chrome browser. You can store just a um, just a small Bloom filter, and then user types URL same pattern as with database. User types the URL and browser just checks through the uh, through the local bloom filter if bloom filter says no then it's okay if bloom filter says yes then you maybe uh, there are different strategies you can ask the server to confirm it's a, it's a bad url or you just uh, go and uh, say uh, sorry uh, we know this url is uh, um, dangerous for you the characteristics of this problem that enable you to solve it that way is the number of urls it's an enormous number and URLs could also be quite long. In your earlier example, you talked about IP addresses, which are shorter than URLs. So the space savings would be much greater for a comparable amount of data. Right, right. I mean, because you use hash function, you hash. It doesn't matter uh, for Bloom filter how long was the input. It's more important how long the Bloom filter itself and how many functions do you use. I'm really enjoying this discussion about membership, uh, but in interest of time, I'd like to move on to another great use case, which is cardinality. Start off with defining the problem. Okay, cardinality, that's another, another problem in uh, modern applications. So actually cardinality, that's a task to count unique elements in the data set where uh, some elements could have duplicates. Uh, again, if we if we think about the classical solution, how you will how you will implement such uh, such stuff. So probably you will store uh, elements in some array again, and then you use sort. And every time then you want to index new element, you do sort, or you have already pre-sorted array, and then you do search through that pre-sorted array and try to define if element exists. Then you uh, just do nothing. If element does not exist, you do insertion. Uh, and then if you want to know the count, you just count that elements in that list. Uh, but again, what, what will happen? The memory would be linear to the number of unique elements. And the time you will need to do, that would be n logarithm n, right? So that also would be even, uh, even a little bit worse than, um, uh, worse than um, linear. Uh, and the important what time would be dependent on the uh, number uh, of total number of uh, elements. And this is why in cardinality also uh, th there was a research and tried to find such probabilistic some trade-off which way you can save to, uh, to, f to actually make this task possible in a big amount of data. Let's come back in a, a couple minutes to more internal to how it works. Let's talk about some of the use cases for counting. What are popular examples? I mean, the obvious example that you want to count number of visitors for your website. I mean, if your website is not quite popular, then maybe you can count them uh, manually even on paper. But if you are if you are a big website, so for instance, Amazon, eBay or uh, Walmart, yeah, they have uh, 1.4 billion visits per month. Uh, that that that's the data from last last year. So and every that vis every every visitor does about eight views. Let's say like that. That means totally you have uh, in total you have about twelve billions of IP addresses. And as we said already, one twenty eight bits per IP address. We will end up with one hundred ninety gigabyte. Which is which is a lot. And now imagine out of these AP addresses we have let's say every tenth, so ten percent are unique. Uh, that means we will get about one hundred forty-four millions of unique elements, which will just to store this number of elements you will need about twenty twenty-three gigabyte of memory. 
and this is in this is where you actually need to think uh, now or either you have a lot of space which unlikely you will have it doesn't matter how how, how big your machines and how much money much money do you have at some point you will hit this problem what you not you will have not enough space or not enough time to compute this and in this case uh, you can uh, try to approximate or try to compute a number of unique elements using some probabilistic data structures to store so just to store all uh, unique ip addresses you will need 23 gigabyte of memory this is this which is already uh, already a kind of uh, challenging for a normal array all right and this is why it's a good example uh, to start thinking about the probabilistic approaches. I'm aware that this exact problem is also given as a kind of a hello world for Hadoop or some kind of clustered processing where you pipe log files into your cluster. How would you compare uh, use of a probabilistic data structure to um, using Hadoop to get the answer? Okay. Right. Uh, so um, actually, that's examples. Uh, uh, Hello World example. It's called Word Count example for uh, Apache Spark, Apache Hadoop, Flink, and all other distributed stuff. So actually, they solve this problem by the distributed computation. So they work in the kind of pattern of map reduce. So instead of count. Uh, on one machine which can have lack of memory for instance they can split counting by uh, i don't know 100 machines and then every machine will will count some subset of the elements and then at some point that would be a reduce operation in the map reduce where you can put back all these counts but the problem actually it can help if you have not so big data but as soon as you have data uh, huge, huge data let's say the delta which classical big data which characterized by high volume high high volume high velocity uh, it doesn't matter how how uh, you split your your uh, data it still would be not enough power or not enough time to process this data this is why i think it's a little bit different direction and uh, probabilistic data structures this is something to to reduce the computational time and to reduce memory instead of just dedicate it to different machines and uh, uh, and try so it, it's um, I would say it's uh, kind of this is a smarter way to solve the problem and this is and uh, for map reduce this is more like power power way to solve that problem now I want to get more into how it works there are uh, at least a couple of cardinality data structures the one that I've heard the most about is called hyperloglog. Is is that the most popular cardinality data structure? Yeah, I think I think this is the one most uh, most used uh, right now. This is hyperloglog. It was was uh, proposed by Philip Flauchet and uh, and um, uh, other researchers from his team in 2000 uh, uh, 2007. Uh, however, there are others. There are others, and maybe we should start our discussion from the simplest structure, and then we'll get uh, how hyperlock lock works. If you are interested in that, let's. Uh, sounds like a good strategy. Let's choose the simplest one, and then I'll move on to another use case because we're trying to cover a lot in an hour. Okay. So uh, hyperlock lock. Uh, uses uses inside that algorithm uses number of different algorithms let's say and for uh, small cardinalities it uses uh, it's called uh, so-called linear counting it was proposed in uh, 87 uh, last century but the main idea of of all these counters actually this is the observe the patterns in the data so what they do uh, and starting from linear counting and also going to the uh, lock lock hyperlock lock and hyperlock lock plus plus which are modification of the hyperlock lock so they they take they use one hash function they compute that function based on your uh, input then they the output of the hash function it's a binary number they treat it as a binary number and then they just try to try to check the distribution of ones and zeros in that in that numbers in that number and uh, there is also such um, such concept as a rank this is a least significant bit position in in the binary number so you know it like it's a, a leftmost one 
right? And then they can collect different uh, different ranks in the different counters, and they uh, and then every counter would be somehow uh, an estimator or approximator for the correct for the correct counting. Uh, and based on these uh, counters, they just provide uh, uh, provide the, the value, which of course kind of probabilistic, and there is a trade-off between the how long your counter and uh, so how much memory do you have and uh, um, which accuracy you want to get at the end. That wasn't so clear to me. I think I think I'd like to do this. Um, can we pick one, either linear counter or hyperlog log, whichever is easiest to explain and go into how, okay. how does that work? Okay, uh, let's take linear counting. I think okay. this is the simplest one. Okay, um, so how, how does that work? Okay, so uh, linear counting. Uh, it's, it's, it's really simple approach, what was proposed in A87. Um, so, Imagine we have we have a Bloom filter with one with one function. So we already know Bloom filter that's a bit array, right? And if we have one function, one hash function, what we do we compute that function based on the uh, your input and set only one bit somewhere in the, the, this bit array. As soon as we index more, 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 and more elements to that uh, Bloom filter, which now uh, which now called linear counting. Uh, it's less uh, number of zeros left in that bit array, right? So we have more ones. And then based on the number of zeros and the length of the uh, Bloom filter, we can uh, estimate the number of elements which are possible possible in that filter. Uh, there is a formula, it's, 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 quite, it's quite easy, but the problem what this number is almost never correct. It's always overestimate uh, the correct values uh, because of the collisions, for instance, right? So only one function, of course, you will have a lot of collisions. But uh, a researcher found uh, what uh, this linear counter is quite good and uh, for small cardinalities, then you have not so many, I don't know, maybe um, about uh, hundred, uh, hundred thousand, a hundred thousand uh, uh, unique elements, uh, maybe less. And uh, for such cases, they are quite good. And for instance, um, and they are quite efficient because like theoretically, if you have a billion of elements uh, and you have, uh, you allow the error of 1%, you will need only one megabyte for the uh, for the linear counter, and this is why it's used in uh, for in uh, hyperlock lock algorithms because hyperlock lock itself has a really uh, bad performance on small numbers because it was designed for really huge cardinalities. Then you have I don't know hundreds of millions and billions uh, unique elements. So if I understood this, then looking at the statistical distribution of zeros and ones in the hash functions, you can invert that to get an idea of how many distinct members were in that set. Right, right. Okay, and that example you gave estimating cardinality of sets with a billion members enormous at enormous space savings compared to if you had to track all of the members individually. Right, right. So I, I gave example about linear counting, which never used on such big, um, big number of uh, elements. But for instance, hyperlock lock, which designed for billions. Uh, I have another example. So uh, hyperlock lock, for instance, for two percent of error of estimated uh, unique elements up to uh, one billion, uh, takes only one point five kilobyte of memory, uh, which is uh, enormous actually. Another, another example, uh, maybe your listeners are more familiar with, this is a Redis. A Redis, this is in-memory database, which uses, um, which also uses the hyperlock lock in the function uh, pfcount to get approximate number. So they actually use a 12 kilobyte of uh, hyperlock lock uh, data structures and the error is 0.81%. We were comparing this to Hadoop I'm not sure how big of a Hadoop cluster you would need to count a billion members, but having a whole Hadoop cluster clearly is more expensive than using 12K of memory. Right. Especially in Hadoop, you also need a networking, which is also expensive these days. Is it possible to use these formulas 
to correct for the degree of overestimation in order to get an even more accurate count in the cardinality problem? Okay, so uh, actually uh, cardinality, that's a quite complex problem. And uh, yes, you can try to correct and there are, uh, there are implementations of hyperlock look uh, which tries to correct the bias. It's called hyperlock look plus plus. And what they actually do, they just, they just, they just uh, pre-compute some values. So they try different uh, distribution of data and just try to learn how, how, uh, how the error uh, behaves in, for these data sets. And then based on this data, they propose the way how to correct stuff. So, uh, but, um, so, so the problem, what the correction, this is a task what you have to do yourself in most cases. So you know your distribution better and uh, you can use, uh, if, if you are not like uh, Elasticsearch, which does not know exactly which is, what is the elements you have. But if you know, for instance, this is elements of your transactions, then you can uh, tune the hyperlock logs by ad uh, adjusting the co coefficient, the weights, and you can get better, uh, better value. But in most cases, Hyperlock log, obviously enough uh, to get the uh, filling of the number of elements you have. In the interest of time, I want to move on to a next use case, which is the frequency problem and the count min sketch data structure. These things all have quite funny sounding names to me. Uh, I assume they're in hyperlog log. Uh, is there some kind of reason for the names? Okay, so uh, actually the algorithm is log log, yeah, because because uh, it it estimates as a logarithm of, of log a uh, just a different uh, parameters, different estimation function, different decision decision making function which used inside. Uh, so there is there there is uh, let's say a theory behind this, but uh, this is not something what you really really want to know. Okay, let's talk about frequency then, starting with defining the problem okay uh, so that's another another uh, problem of counting right so uh, but this problem comes usually in the context of stream mining so you want to know that's a task to know how many times that element occurred uh, and you usually as i said it's in the context of the stream mining and the problem here, um, why we cannot use just a normal counting approaches, because streams in uh, big data, which is characterized by high velocity, that means it comes on really, really fast, so, uh, on the high speed, and also it's really long, it does not allow you to do another lookup through the stream. That means uh, the frequency uh, problems, which we want to talk about, this is a frequency which requires one pass through data. And of course, uh, as before, we, are, we, we don't want linear, linear space because that's a huge data. And also we need some fast updates because if elements comes on the really high speed or high frequency, uh, high uh, speed, then we, we would be a bottleneck if we cannot process that element fast enough. Uh, yes, so I understand we're, we're talking something maybe web or network traffic, it's coming in at a very high rate. We get to see each thing once and we want to be able to answer some questions about what we saw. Uh, right, or for instance, another example, you try you try to um, get number of visitors to your website, right? And uh, you want to uh, notify if there is uh, some really, um, or quite, let's say some frequent visitor uh, comes, uh, you cannot, you, uh, you, you cannot reprocess afterwards all visitors of your web website usually for uh, no, one year. And this is why you want to do, you, you want, if you want a decision in real time, you have to be real time. That's actually the, the reason. Okay. So what are some popular situations where you see this problem? Uh, okay, so um, let's let's talk about what kind of frequency problems we can have. So uh, I mean, the obvious one this is uh, to find most frequent uh, most frequent element in the set, like uh, the top top frequency, top most popular articles on the website. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Top most popular articles. Another one, maybe you want to uh, to find the article which occurs more than half of all articles you have. Right, so it's it's kind of artificial problem, but 
possible like that. Or for instance, there is another, uh, another problem. This is to find heavy hitters. It's called heavy hitters. This is the elements, K elements, which are cured more than uh, total number of elements divided by K times. So the fraction, more than fraction, K fraction of all elements. So for instance, this is, a, let's say, most heavy commenters of your website. So who produces the most amount of comments. And another one related to that uh, um, problem, this is a max change problem. So this is actually uh, elements which had the most change in frequency since previous period. So imagine Twitter. On Twitter there are hashtags and there are, uh, there are some hashtags who have, uh, have more frequent today than yesterday. That means they change in, in change in frequency. And this is something which you, you want to know, right? Because this is something trending right now on Twitter. And this is the way how to, one of the ways how to actually formalize what means trending. Trading, this is a max change in frequency. Could this also apply to different kinds of anomaly detection where you suspect the most active ones are more active than they should be in some security problems. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, um, outlier, outlier anomaly, anomaly detection or outlier def detection. This is something which is not like others. And of course, most frequent element or heavy hitter elements, they are not like others. They they produce. Uh, more amount uh, of uh, you know, values to your system. And of course that could be good or also it could be bad. And for instance, if you think about the credit card and if your all your transaction around, I don't know, Boston area, and then there is transaction which happen uh, not in Boston area, that's already suspicious. Or for instance, if there is, uh, if there, if there is frequent, uh, frequent transaction, uh, uh, which is occur again and again, maybe this is suspicious and you want to check why it happened like that. A frequency data structure like count min sketch, what operations does it support? Okay, so uh, count min sketch, that's, that's a probability, uh, this is approximation and probability data structure, which was proposed in 2003 by Kreham Kormod and uh, Mutfu Krishnan. Uh, th th this is this is a data structure which supports actually also two operations. So one operation, this is the add element into the data structure, and another one, it estimates the frequency of the element uh, through the um, data structure. Uh, data, this data structure uh, actually mm, um, can be seen uh, from the idea of the counting Bloom filter. This is a Bloom filter who support, so who support counting of number of elements was uh, actually um, added to the uh, to the data. So rather than just setting the bit when the hash function from the hash function output, you would increment when you add something new. So additionally to the setting the bits you also increment the counter. So that means you, you have Bloom filter, which much, much bigger. Uh, and this idea actually developed in the count mean sketch. So um, how works count mean? What is count mean sketch? Count mean sketch, this is a number of counters, uh, one counter per hash function. So you have some amount of hash functions, let's say K hash functions. And you can, and you for every hash function you have some counter of length, I don't know, m, something like this. That means it end up as a matrix, binary, uh, not binary, but um, matrix of counters. So I have one row per hash, and then each row are the counts relating to the hash function output. Right. So every time then you uh, actually index element you compute the hash function and update the corresponding, uh, corresponding counter. Of course, that would be not, uh, not really um, efficient if you need to compute all K function. This is why count mean sketch also uses a technique. It's, it, it, splits, it splits the hash value by K part and then every part used to uh, update the corresponding counter. So there are some optimization you can use in the count mean sketch. Uh, and um, every time, so as I said, every time you index, you update some you update some counter. And then if you want now uh, perform the operation frequency, so you need to estimate frequency from these counters, what you need to do, you just need to take the minimum, the minimal one. Why minimal? Uh, because 
actually all these counters, again, as we said, for linear counting and for Bloom filter, they are all uh, overestimate. They over overestimate the real value. And uh, um, you cannot just take, uh, uh, you have many different counters and all of them overestimate the correct value. So uh, you cannot just take the average, for instance. So in most cases, then you have a, a random variable, uh, Average work quite okay to reduce the variance, but here it will not work because all your random variables have one side error. They overestimate. Okay, so the k hash functions gives you the k rows and then you take the minimum. I think you explained pretty clearly why it's the minimum. So you're, 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 instead of having one row, you have k rows so that hopefully one of them will be pretty accurate. Pretty accurate. That's right. So there are different there are different approaches. So instead of this minimum, you can try to remove the mean of uh, these values and then try minimum. Also, there is a modification. So not modification. Let's say a predict a prede predecessor of this count mean sketch, which tries to sometimes increment, sometimes decrement the counter based on the random hash another hash uh, function. But it 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 found what mean cache, just a simple mean, works much better than, than that. And uh, this is the, the data structure which uses in most uh, modern applications actually right now. Okay, so the thing I'm uh, not clear on, if this count mean sketch, we have add and then we have a count function of a given element. How do I go from that to finding the top five most popular articles on my website? What I have to check, how, how do I do that? I'm not clear on that. It, it's, 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 not, it's not easy just to, uh, just to figure out, uh, but so um, uh, there is a technique. So you, you, you just have a monitored list of monitored elements. So, and then uh, every, time you, every time you add uh, and add new element, you estimate frequency of that element from the count mean sketch, right? So if element is completely new, then of course you will get a zero if it's, or maybe a one, which is small uh, because of the um, collision. Or if element is known, then you get uh, then you get the frequency uh, from of uh, that element, and then as soon as you have new element and the frequency, and you maintain the uh, let's say set of monitored element, which is quite small, you don't need too much memory to monitor. Let's say you monitor I don't know hundred of top frequent elements. You just compare frequency of that elements which are in your monitored set to the frequency of the element you have. If there is a frequency which has less uh, value than you have, then you uh, remove that uh, monitored uh, element and put your element in, uh, uh, in that position. Or you just update the frequency in the monitored set if it's already there, for instance. Uh, and this is why uh, you just you just have this small monitored set uh, and you continuously uh, uh, consume the stream. Uh, so no problem in this case. Got it. And do you have any numbers you can give on a given size and error rate of the space savings for common sketch compared to exact? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right, so such some numbers I have, for instance, uh, how fast how fast implementations of count mean sketch can produce updates. Because remember, we said what with high velocity in uh, in data streams that really important to to perform update operation fast. And uh, right now there are implementation which are reported like forty four millions updates per second. Uh, what about this space? Uh, for instance, uh, so th there are two parameters which you can which you can um, tune to uh, to get to get the account mean sketch. Uh, so one parameter this is the probability of the error, and another parameter this is the approximation to the real problem. This is why I said it's approximator and probability data structure. So if you have uh, one percent of probability of the error and uh, two percent and 2% of the approximation to the problem, yeah? so then uh, you will need uh, one, 136 counters and five hash functions. So you will have a, end up with the matrix five by 136. And if you use for counters uh, now 32 bits uh, integers, then you end up with uh, 22 kilobytes of memory, something about that. I'd ask you about the size, but it sounds like the 
processing speed is really the more significant advantage in this case. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm going to uh, refer listeners to the book for reading about rank and similarity because there are some other things I want to discuss in the amount of time we have. Andre, suppose listeners realize this solves a problem they have or could be useful. Are there libraries in everyone's and are there libraries in in different programming languages that implement these so right now right now most of popular programming languages have uh, some implementation of the probabilistic data structure however there is a problem with quality of these implementations and uh, this is and this is really hard to so there is no no like standard implementation some of some of them have standard from the authors but still, uh, they're not like production ready and you cannot just uh, take without looking inside and apply it to the problem. Uh, but, but this is general problem for big data. You cannot just take something from the internet and uh, make it work in your, in your environment. Uh, th there are some uh, good implementations in Python. Uh, I know there are implementations in, of course, Java. Coming, uh, I, I see already people start writing in GoLang, for instance. So in C plus plus, of course, because this is a, this is like a first choice. If you need to implement something really fast, you should think about C plus plus implementation. So I mean, you will definitely find some implementation, but you have to understand how the how the data structure works to validate if that implementation actually is correct and uh, uh, fits your your needs there. Where do you think we are in the adoption curve? Is this inherently a very specialist area of programming or do you think these will eventually become as widely known as, say, MapReduce? Okay, uh, it's, it's a good question, uh, actually. So f first problem, uh, let's say, first problem in uh, adoption of this data structure, what, this is quite a new problem. Uh, so the uh, the task what they want to solve this is a quite new task which comes uh, comes with big data, and as more uh, what I already I already see for instance uh, I, uh, the number of publication about probabilistic data structures on Medium increases this uh, this year I don't know maybe ten times so I think right now it's like if you think about innovation curve so we are right now on the uh, early majority. So we come from early adopters, which were a, a few people who tried to implement a really specific application to the, uh, to the cases where like average average uh, application can, uh, can actually use these data structures. Uh, however, they are still really problem specific. Uh, and you cannot uh, and we cannot just say what everybody will uh, will use them as list uh, or I don't know a hash table. But still, uh, I, I believe what the more data we'll have, the more uh, more applications for such probabilistic data structure will uh, arrive. Do you foresee a day when student taking a course, an undergraduate course on data structures, there could be a chapter in the standard textbook on probabilistic data structures? Actually, I think this is extension. I, I, I don't think that should be a chapter right now because uh, still this is kind of specific problem which they, they want to save. Of course, uh, for students, they have to understand what there are, there are some limitations of the uh, convenient or classical data structures. But I think I would, I would probably merge this to the big data processing or uh, data mining uh, course um, uh, particularly because uh, because they they are useful but they they are not they are not so basic let's say and uh, not everybody will need them uh, at the end. I'd like to talk a bit more about your book. When will that be available and where can listeners find it? Uh, the book will be uh, published uh, self-published as ebook through the Amazon Kindle Select and as a paperback through the um, book on demand uh, publisher and uh, it, it will be available in uh, in most of uh, book uh, stores I think that would be um, Amazon and uh, Kins and Noble and uh, all all main retailers should have them I expect, uh, expect it ready in uh, end of February and uh, beginning of the March. Okay, the show is scheduled to run around that time, so listeners should be able to find it, if not on the day we publish this interview, shortly after. 
And listeners, if they'd like to reach you or follow you on the internet, where are the best places to look? You can find me on website gakov.com or just in Twitter at Gakov. Great. And you have a number of slide shares, which I found very useful in preparing this interview. We'll link to those in the show notes. Andrei Gakov, thank you very much for speaking to Software Engineering Radio. Thank you very much. For Software Engineering Radio, this has been Robert Blumen, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at sc-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening. <laughs>